Well, Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, made the comment that it takes 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours is really the magic number to be great at something, to be an expert at something. And it's really interesting because it's backed up by a lot of psychological studies, social science. There was a study done a number of years ago. It was looking at the best chess players. Uh, the best, so Grandmaster Bobby Fischer being one of them. Some of you might know that name. And what they found was to be great at chess, like Bobby Fischer is great at chess, then these chess players usually spend between 10 and 50 hours studying the chessboard. Here's a picture of Bobby Fischer. If you've, I didn't know what he looked like. Looks like a nice guy, right? So 10 to 50 hours of staring at chess pieces. So if you have ADHD, watch out. Like that might be a different, difficult path to, to go on. There's another study done just a few years ago, and it was looking at famous composers. And it was talking about the famous composers. And who's a famous composer? Somebody throw one out. Mozart. Mozart. Here's Mozart. Good looking guy, wasn't he? Wouldn't you like to have a picture of somebody drew you like that? You know, get the little hair. Anyways, so Mozart, Sebastian Bach, Beethoven. And here's what they found that these great composers didn't create their masterpiece, the great work of art, until they were 10 years into their careers. And some of them, there were some who did it at year nine. So here's what's interesting. Take 10,000 hours. Any of you math majors out there, take 10,000 hours and divide it by three hours a day. What's that? 3,333 days. Nine years. Seems like something to that number, right? The greatest composers, the greatest chess players. This is nine, ten years of your life spent practicing. They used to say Tiger Woods would hit golf balls 12 hours a day. And so you want to be great at something, the singular focus it takes to be great at something. you got to put 10,000 hours into it. Interesting, isn't it? Now, let me ask you here. How many of you guys have worked in the same career field for nine years or more? A bunch of you. How many of you have you been married nine years or more? How many of you have kids who are nine or older? All right, so you guys are experts, right? <laughs> Expert parents. Experts at your job, expert husbands, right? Ladies, right? She's like, yeah, we're working on it. I'm working on him. I'm working on him. That's what Courtney would say. So why doesn't it work for us then? How come someone like Mozart or Beethoven or Tiger Woods or Yo-Yo Ma or whoever it is, the greatest cellist or violin player, if you want to learn how to throw a slider, how come they can be great after nine to ten years, but we still struggle. What do you think it is? See, I think it's the way we're wired. See, the reality is, like, we have this desire for greatness. Anybody in here doesn't want to be great? You're like, nah. All right, we got one. Okay, I like it. Talk to him later. He'll tell you why. He'll tell you why. He's got a good reason why. He wants Jesus to be great. Amen? Yeah. So, um, but the idea is, like, we all want to be great, right? There's this desire inside of us for greatness. We all want something to be great. And t- what tends to happen is when we pursue greatness in our own level, we get singularly focused on who? Me. Right? And so I want to be great, and it doesn't matter what it is. Like, you, if you want to be a great at throwing a slider, that's one thing. But for a lot of us, 99.9% of us, we just want to be great at life. We want to be great with our families and our marriages and our careers and just uh, the day-to-day hobbies that we love. We want to be great mountain bikers or great skiers or great guitarists. So what happens is we devote ourselves to that thing because that's conventional wisdom. And so we focus on me or, or, or my body. We focus on my career. What, what ends up happening is we end up saying, well, someday when I'm great, someday when I get there, 
then it's really going to benefit everybody else. But I just got to really work hard now. But if you've done that, you know that what tends to happen is in the wake of that pursuit of greatness is hurt friendships, broken relationships, and guilt. And there's almost this feeling of like, why am I not there yet? Have you ever felt that feeling? Like this is a little feeling you get in your stomach when you just wonder like, what's going on? Why am I not there? And you feel like this emptiness. And, and it makes me wonder, could we have it backwards? Yes. Could the pursuit to playing the violin at a great level be giving it 10,000 hours? But could the pursuit to living a happy, full life where you're great at work and at home and with your friends, could that be found in a different way? Could that be found actually seeking outward instead of inward? Mark chapter 9 is a really cool account, that, this conversation that we walk upon with Jesus. He, he's with his disciples, and he's been having these conversations about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And then he comes upon a conversation that his disciples are having about being great. And so the disciples are talking about, like, who's going to be the greatest? James and John are talking about they're going to be the, the, the vice president and Andrew's over here saying that he wants to be the, the, you know, the secretary of defense. And, you know, they're all plotting out their role when Jesus is going to be the king on his throne. And, and so Jesus, he knows what they're talking about. And he walks up to them, and they came to Capernaum. Notice this, Mark 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, so what were you guys talking about? You know, of course, Jesus knows all things, right? What were you guys talking about? The weather, you know, the Rockies, the Nuggets, number one seed, whoop, whoop. What are you guys talking about? And, and notice they, were, they kept silent because they had been arguing with each other. Verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was going to be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 together. He called his disciples and notice what he says. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Do you see what Jesus says here? Don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying that greatness is not found in seeking inward. The greatness is found in seeking what's outward. The greatness isn't found in seeking what's for me. The greatness is actually found when I start seeking what's best for you. Now, that's really interesting because Jesus is the one that spoke everything to an existence. Jesus is the one who came and gave us the, the best path for life, the blueprint for what it looks like to live the good life that we are created to live. And Jesus is saying something that is different than what most of us think. Which is usually the case, isn't it? But Jesus is, is saying something that's almost contradicting conventional wisdom in the world. And, and let's be honest, I don't love what Jesus says. Now, I, I see it's, a, it's what's good for me, but when Jesus says, hey, you know what the best thing for you is going to be? It's not to focus on you, but it's to serve somebody else. Like when I, what happens when that, you hear that? You're probably not, not like me. You guys are probably excited about that. But I hear that, and I'm like, Man, that just doesn't sound as exciting to me. Like if you're like, hey, Drew, let's, let's go play golf, or Drew, let's go eat your favorite food, or Drew, let's go do something you want to do. I'm like, let's go. I'm excited. But you're like, hey, Drew, let's go serve someone. I'm like, I mean, that wasn't my first choice, right? I mean, anybody else ever been there? But yet Jesus says it's what's best for us. How come we don't get excited at that? Well, I think it's because it's, it's what's best for us. 
I mean, we do live in a broken world, let's be honest, that's been broken by sin. And so our natural inclinations are to point inward. You know, Martin Luther says that our hearts are just idol factories. You, overcome, you conquer one, and then there's another one that comes. And so all of the things that are good for us don't sound very exciting at first. Like, how many of you love brushing your teeth before bed? Now, how many of you love when your spouse brushes their teeth in the morning? Like, you, man, you guys are gross. Seriously? Like, only two of you? Anyways, brush your teeth in the morning. Go look back at old sermons. I'll tell you why, okay? But nobody likes to brush your teeth before bed. Why? Because you're doing something fun. You're watching a show. You're tired. You want to go to sleep, right? Whatever it is. Like, we, nobody loves eating kale salad with chicken with no seasoning. And if you do, you're twisted. Like, let's just, let's just be real. But you know what? I had a friend tell me the other day who's been on a, a really, doing really well, healthy weight, weight loss program. He's lost 25 pounds. It looks great. He said, nothing tastes as good as I feel. And I'm like, that makes good sense, right? But he didn't feel that way at first. We don't love doing things that are good for us at first. We like doing things that feel good, but maybe that aren't good. We don't like going to the gym, but once you start really getting in a workout plan, you love it. And so there's something here about the way that God has wired us. And God is telling us, Jesus is telling us here that serving others, that living outward is what is best for us, is what leads to true greatness in our marriages, in our churches, in our relationships, and in our careers. See, the challenge, though, with us is that we have this backwards in our minds because we tend to think to ourselves that what I really need to do is enjoy the time that I have that's free. Because, man, I'm busy working, or I'm busy taking my kids to soccer practice, and I only have this certain amount of time that's free. I want to hold on tight to that time. We've all been there. We've all had that thought. And it's a, there's nothing wrong with that thought because it's, it's natural. We say, well, I, I really, I, I want to enjoy my Saturdays at home. Or really, I want to just enjoy this time with my family. And if it's convenient for me, then I'll get up and I'll go do that thing. Or maybe I'll go to church or maybe I'll, I'll serve at that event. But you know what happens to us? And tell me if I'm wrong. Is when we always say me first, others second, we end up orienting our schedule and our lives around that. And we find ourselves empty. And we're always wondering, well, God, why does my life feel so dry? Why does my life feel like it's missing something? And could it be that what we're missing is simply stepping outside of ourselves and serving others first. Today, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12. And at Romans chapter 12, I think Jesus, we're going to see Paul use the teachings of Jesus and, and, and just the, the, the concepts that Christ gives us to show us that what really fills us up, what really leads to a life of fullness and joy and happiness and peace and greatness truly is backwards in the way we normally think about the world. And so look, look at this here in Romans chapter 12. Grab your Bibles and let's open up Romans chapter 12. Romans is going to be uh, just a few chapters after the book of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, if you're flipping in your Bible. Romans is an amazing book. It's, it's considered to be one of the greatest, most powerful books in the Bible. John Piper calls it the greatest letter, letter ever written. And what's awesome about the book of Romans is Paul spends the first 11 chapters in Romans explaining to us how ridiculous it is of what God did for us, the ridiculousness of God's grace. And so that we were, we were lost, we were sinners, but we have now been saved by grace through faith. And it's this beautiful thing that Paul unravels and showing us that now we can walk in the spirit. And if, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And it's this beautiful reality of living in, in the Christ-filled life. 
And then in chapter 12, Paul really turns his focus and says, now you, church, and he's writing to the Roman church, church in Rome, full of Gentiles and full of Jews who come together as one. And he's telling them how they should live in light of all this amazing grace that God has given them. Does that make sense? So Romans 12 is kind of the, the, the transition point. And that's where we're going to camp out here today. Notice what he says, starting here in Romans 12, verse 1. Notice what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul says, I appeal to you, like, listen to me. Based on all the things that we just talked about for the previous 11 chapters of this letter, all the amazing things God has done for you, your response should be to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Present yourself to God in this way that is holy and acceptable to God. So he says, you just need to present yourself. So what does that mean? Let's just camp out there on that one word. What does it mean to present something? Anybody ever been given an award? Anybody ever been on stage and actually gave the award to somebody else? When I was in, how many Cubs, anybody Cub Scouts? You guys in Cub Scouts? So when I was in Cub Scouts, we did the Pinewood Derby. You guys remember the Pinewood Derby? Any of you guys? Remember you took the little block of wood home and you, you got it on the band, you know, the, the, the saw, and you cut it out, and you sanded it down to look like a Corvette, right? And then you carved it out and put little weights in the bottom. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, and then you painted it up and you put racing stripes on it or lightning bolts, whatever. Well, let me just say, I dominated like the fourth grade pine wood derby. Like, I took like every award home. I still have the car at home. I don't have the trophy though. I don't know what happened. The tro- trophy didn't matter. It was about the car. So I remember, though, I, I don't remember well, but I remember, though, that I, you know, I win first, and they bring me up on stage, and they present me with this little trophy, right? It was like a 50-cent little, you know, you know what I'm talking about, little plastic, little gold little guy. And I was presented with this trophy. And so it was given to me. It was handed over to me. This trophy was, was mine. Think of presenting like that. That God wants us to present ourselves to him. It's not something that we give to God and we take back. Don't we do that a lot? We're like, God, if you answer my prayer, if she goes to the dance with me, anybody say that in high school? If she, if she goes to the prom with me, God, if she'll take me back, God, if, if he'll just answer my call, God, if the boss will just overlook that problem, I will do whatever you ask me to do. And then God works it out and we're like, thanks, God, catch you later. We do that, don't we? Is that presenting yourself? No, it's not. Presenting yourself is giving yourself over to God wholeheartedly. Giving yourself over to God. Paul actually says we we give ourselves, we present ourselves to God as this living sacrifice. Like we're saying, God, thank you for saving me. Jesus, thank you for coming and changing my life and setting me on this path for new life. And my response is, here's my life. I'm going to give it to you. And I want you to tell me what I should do with it. And Paul says we present it as a a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves to God, and this becomes our spiritual worship. Or your your Bible translation may say spiritual service of worship. Now, a lot of us, I think we think about worship as singing songs. We think about worship as maybe riding in our car, and we got Caleb playing or um, or Air One, or we're we're in here, and, and the band's leading us in worship. We think of it like that, and... But this would almost lead us to believe that worship is something different, right? Like, so what is worship? I think worship sometimes has been hijacked in our, in our minds by movies and TV shows, 
Like Wayne's World, right? We're not worthy. We're not worthy. You guys know what I'm talking about. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. So we think of worship as this like this thing that we're bowing down on our knees or, or, or whatever. Worship is, just by definition, the feeling of or expression of reverence and adoration. So think about all the different ways that you can express your feelings of, of adoration to God. You can sing songs here, right? What else can you do? You can open God's word and read the amazing things that he's written us. You can talk to your buddy about how good God is. You can have coffee or meet with other people. You can walk your dog and praise God for how nice it is outside. There's a lot of ways that you can worship God, but that is not the way that Paul gives us. Paul says one of the ways we worship God is when we present ourselves to God for spiritual worship, when we give ourselves over to God, meaning when we give God our lives and say, God, I'm going to worship you for who you are, so use me however you think is best. I want you to notice something, too. Look back here. Romans 12, look here in verse 1. He also says this. He says, present your body, bodies. Somebody say bodies. Bodies. What's the difference? He doesn't say, Drew, present your body to God for spiritual worship. He said, present your bodies. Bodies, is that singular or plural? plural? You guys are on it today. It's plural. So the idea is it's us, us. Present your bodies. He's talking to us. He's not just talking to you. He's writing to us. So when we read this, there's this corporate element here. He says, present your bodies to us. And then he gives us a word picture in verse 4. Notice this. He says, for as in one body we have many members. The idea being like your body has an arm, you have an ear, you have a foot, you have a toe. And he says, we have many members, and the, the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I love how simple the word pictures are in the Bible. You know, Jesus talks about agriculture all the time. Why? Because he lived in an agrarian culture. So he talked about putting, you know, your hands to the plow, or he talked about the mustard seed. And Paul's talking about our bodies. Help us understand, you cannot function as a church if it's just an arm or a leg or a foot, right? You need all of that together for you to be able to function as your body. So this is the picture that Paul gives us, that we present ourselves over and it's our spiritual service of worship to God as we provide ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Now, here's the challenge. One of the greatest threats that you and I face is our desire to compartmentalize our lives. Now, you might not do this, but I have a tendency to do this. And the idea is we say, you know what, I'm around enough people already at work when I'm at home on my Zoom call for 40 minutes, right? Like, I, I got about as much social as I need to get in that moment of time. But seriously, if you're working in an office or you're at school, you guys are around people during the day. Like, you guys get enough, you know, it's easy to think that. Or, you know, I want to hold my home time or my weekends or I want to hold all of this together to be with family or to go on a bike ride or to go on a hike or whatever, and we limit ourselves from being around large groups of people. Now, I'm kind of speaking to the choir because you're all here in large groups of people, but just bear with me for the, for the illustration here. Like, when we compartmentalize our lives and say, hey, look, I'm going to do this for an hour, but I'm not going to do anything else, and I want to guard my me time. And there's nothing wrong with guarding your me time. We need time to rest. We need time to rejuvenate. But if all we do is rest and rejuvenate, if all we do is keep ourselves isolated from other people, then we're going to find ourselves empty and we're going to find ourselves lonely and we're going to find ourselves missing out on the greatness of fellowship and being together as one. And so what Jesus is saying 
This picture of Jesus and his church that Paul says here is that when we come together and when we serve together, it's in that thing, it's in that service of each other, of working together that we find the community around us and we actually find that our cups begin getting filled. So here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that our response to God's grace is to serve together as one. Like it just simply to, to serve together as one. Like this picture that Paul gives us is that we're all brought together as one. See, what's interesting about this letter of Romans, and some of you may know this, is that the, the letter of Romans is written to a, a group in, of, of house churches in Rome, of Jews and Gentiles, who didn't like each other at all. So you had Jews who grew up believing they were the chosen people, and Jesus came from their, uh, from, from, you know, their lineage. And so the Jews are saying, hey, guys, Greeks, if you want to be Christians, you have to do it like we do it. You need to do all these things. You need to keep the law. You need to do all these things. And then you got, you got Greeks who grew up pagan, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And they're looking to the Jews like, man, no, no, all that's gone. Jesus, is, this is all new. And so you got Jews and Gentiles who are button heads. And so Paul writes this letter and he says, guys, look, you guys have to get along. Because you guys are called to serve together. And you're called to be one body together in the church. And so notice what Paul says in verse 2. He says this. He says, So do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the will, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I love that verse. Anybody else, anybody else love that verse? It's a great verse. I love this idea of like renewing our mind, of being transformed. And I think that works out so many ways in our life, right? Like, how many of you, when you first spent some time trying to understand something God was telling you, got it the very first time? Like, very few of us, right? Let's be honest, none of us got it. But the more we spend time renewing our mind, the more we ask God to give us strength and wisdom and discernment, the more we, we get it. So we need to renew our mind on God's word, and God's word transforms the way we think about things. Specifically, Paul is writing to a group of Rome, uh, in the church in Rome of these Jews and Gentiles who hate each other, and he's saying, look, don't be conformed to the thinking of this world. What's, the what's that thinking of this world? Is that everybody's different. Your culture's different. I don't like you, right? The Jews didn't like the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't like the Jews. He says, stop thinking like the world thinks. The world thinks that because you're different than me that I shouldn't have community with you or relationships with you. It should be very different. He says, stop that. Don't be conformed to the thinking of this world and instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may discern, you may understand what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul is saying that we need to see each other with new eyes. We need to see each other that we are called together. Doesn't matter what our background is, doesn't matter what our history looks like, doesn't matter what our what what, what our home life looks like, we are called together to be one in this beautiful thing that God calls the church. Now sometimes we struggle with this, and I, and I know this is just a reality of living in a broken world. It, it's the way the world works. It's we look at someone that's different than us and we immediately have a thought. We struggle seeing others the way we see ourselves. And maybe one of the easiest illustrations of this is when you're driving down an exit ramp and you see a homeless person, right? Like, let's just be honest. Can church be a place we can be real and honest? Like, it should be, right? So what do you think when you drive down? Just be real with yourself. When you pull up an exit ramp and you see somebody next to you at the exit ramp, what's the first thought that goes to your mind, right? So for some of us, it's roll up the windows. For some of it's like, do I got a blessing bag in the back, right? 
For some of us, it's like, do I got a gospel track in the car? Whatever, right? Some, some of that stuff. But the first thought that goes to your mind typically is, man, this person really messed their life up. Or, man, that person just must not have a very good work ethic. Or, man, somebody really hurt this person. Like, right, we, we, we tend to not see them like we see ourselves. Like, we see ourselves, we look in our mirror, we're like, we look in the mirror, and once we recognize ourselves from a gospel perspective, we're like, man, sin is just, sin is just brutal. And my life, I just seem to fall back in these little things. God, thank you for saving me. God, I needed your grace. God, give me strength. God, I trust in you. Yet we pull up on an exit ramp, and we look at that guy, and we go, man, I don't think I want to give him any money because he's probably just going to go buy alcohol. But, but could it be that what Paul is trying to do is to let God's word change our minds about the way we look at other people? It's the way we look at the poor, the way we look at the people who have walked through tough situations in life. And so when we pull up to that street and we look out and we see that homeless person, the first thought isn't, man, that's a bum. Our first thought is, man, that's somebody who needs Jesus, like me. That's somebody who was, who was poor in spirit, just like me. Now, I'm not saying we give them 50 bucks every time. But what I am saying that if we can begin to see others the way we should see ourselves in light of what Jesus has done for us is that we all need God's grace in our lives, right? And that we all need someone to show us care. You and I wouldn't be where we are today with having Jesus move in our life if somebody didn't tell us about Jesus, if somebody didn't serve us, if somebody didn't invite us into church or invite us to youth group or whatever it was. And so we, we tend to look at people who don't look like us, who look like they're in difficult situations and think down on them when Paul is trying to let us know that, man, we are all falling short of God's glory, and that's why we all need the grace of God, and none of us are better than the other. Notice what he says in, in verse 3. It's kind of a humbling verse. He says, For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has a sign. Do you see what he's saying, guys? Is that when we see someone that doesn't look like us, that, that seems like they're in bad situation, instead of judging them immediately, let's realize that, man, like we could be there too. Well, and it doesn't have to be a homeless person. It could be anybody. But we could be there too. They do say that you know, the majority of people who are living in homeless circumstances are battling with mental health challenges. And so you know, the reality is that we all need the saving grace of Jesus. And that's what Paul is calling us to, to stop looking at us differently based on the color of our skin or based on the income level or based on where we live or any of that kind of stuff, but look at it as all people who have gathered together and joined under the name of Jesus as the church. See, one of the biggest problems I think the church has is the church is viewed as judgy and judgmental and hypocritical, and people walk into churches and they feel like they get scoffed at. Hey, forefront, let's never be that kind of church, Amen. Like, I want people to walk in here and be like, man, I felt like I was part of the family from day one. And it doesn't matter what they look like or what they're wearing or what their background is. We are all called together to see the beauty of the gospel and that Jesus brings us together as one church. And I think this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that a renewed mind sees God building us into one church. Like, this is the, the one thing that God is bringing all of us. And, and I want you to think about this. So if, if the world looks out and they see that we've got people who are, are judgmental in churches and these Christians and, oh man, there's not a more segmented hour in the week than Sunday morning. And they look around and they go, well, man, I, I don't know that I want to be a part of that if, if that's how it is. How would the, the world change their thinking when they saw people of all backgrounds, of all 
of all ethnicities and all races and all income levels coming together as one to serve each other. What does that do? That brings glory to God's name. That takes it off of us and he gives it to God. Why would that happen? Because we're serving one another as Jesus tells us. So Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how are you renewing your mind right now? Like this week, what what were you renewing your mind on? Let's be honest. We're all getting discipled by something, right? It could be TMZ. I hope it's not TMZ. (laughs) It could be The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Fox News, CNN, doesn't matter. ESPN, we're all getting discipled. We're all renewing our mind on something. Paul says we need to renew our mind on the will and the word of God. How do we do that? Well, we get in our Bibles, we listen to sermons, we plug into church. We renew our mind by listening to Christian podcasts or listening to things that are going to help us see what God's will is for our lives. And the more you look for it, the more you begin to see it. Because that's the way that God has wired you to work. So Paul paints this picture. We're coming together as one. It's the way we worship God. It's the way we bring glory to God. We show the world what God is up to by the way we serve each other. And then he shows us how this looks. And here's how we're going to close. Notice this, verse 6. He says this. He says, so all of you have been given these gifts. You've all been given gifts that differ according to the grace that God has given us in verse 6. So verse 6, he says, we've all been given these gifts. And if you've been given the gift of prophecy or the gift of service or, or the gift of encouragement or, or the gift of generosity, then use these gifts. Use these gifts and, and serve one another with these gifts. And so basically what, what Paul says is whatever you've been gifted with, figure out your gift and use it. Use it to serve in this church. Use it to serve the, the community of God and do it with a full heart. So what's the holdup then? I think one of the biggest holdups we see in the church is that we as Christians are really good at smashing the brakes. See, God says, hey, I've given you a gift. Use your gift. And, and maybe for you, your gift, you're a great encourager, you're, you're hospitable, or you're the kind of person that's really good at teaching. But we end up holding up on our gifts sometimes because we end up saying, God, I am waiting for you to reveal your will for me. Anybody ever said that? Man, I just wish, God, you would reveal your purpose for my life. Right? We've all said it. God, who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? And so we end up standing on the brakes and we end up waiting for God to try to tell us what we need to do and while we feel empty and we're going, God, fill me up. And God's going, I have told you what to do. Use your gift and serve. Figure out what it is you like to do. Figure out what it is you're good at and do it. Do it for somebody else. Do it in your church. Do it in your neighborhood. Do it in your kid's school but do it. See, when we sit at home and we wait for God to reveal his big will for us and tell us where he wants us to go and where he wants us to move, we feel that emptiness and it continues to get bigger. And could it be that that's the Holy Spirit knocking on your heart saying, just get out and serve. Get out and go. And be a part of that church that God has brought you into because that is the way that you fill your cup. I want to... share a statistic I saw this week with you guys. It was really interesting. So there's been a number of studies done at the University of Massachusetts, University of Utah, London University College, Harvard, Stanford. And what they're doing is they're, they're, they're looking and they're trying to, to figure out 
how does volunteering connect with happiness? And here's what they found. There's an article written in Social Science and Medicine. Put this statistic up here. This is really interesting. So here's what it found. So they, they looked at, um, they, they did all kinds of different studies. One of them looked at 2,000 Christians who were part of the Presbyterian Church. Other ones looked at nonprofit groups. And here's what they found. They found that if you serve at least once a month, if, if you do something to volunteer at least once a month, your happiness level increases by 12%. Hey, you want a 10% bump in how happy you feel? Volunteer once a month, right? That's what social science is finding. Isn't that re- amazing? So more than once a month, less than weekly is 12%. Look at this. This is cool. If you serve one time per week or more, it's a 16% bump in happiness. Now, if you're like me, you look at that number and you're like, hmm, that's not that much more happiness from one to four. So one is good. I'm sticking with one. Anybody else think that or is that just my fallen brain? But check this out. So here's my argument against you. Go to the next slide. Here's what they found. Volunteer, okay, so yeah, you may only go from 12 to 16% in happiness bump, but volunteering weekly is like moving from an income of less than 20000 to an income between $75,000 and $100,000. What does that tell you? Contentment. You see it? So yes, volunteering, serving makes you happy. Just put that on a t-shirt, right? Where's Darren at? Put that on a t-shirt. Danica? Volunteering makes you happy. Serving makes you happy. But also, it makes you content. Because what's the difference between 20000 and 100000 Contentment, security, fulfillment, right? Serve, and you'll feel content and happy. This is the way that God wired us to work. And this is what Paul is saying right here in Romans chapter 12. That what God has called us to do is bigger than us. So simply put, figure out what you're good at and do it. And bless others by doing it in the church and in your neighborhood. I'm going to close with a story here. About, a number, uh, about seven years ago, a movie came out called Molly. I don't know if any of you guys saw this movie. It was really, really great. But it's about a man named Charles Molly who um, lives in Kenya. And at about age six, Charles Molly and his family, uh, he had a family, ten, ten brother, nine brothers and sisters, family of ten. His mom and dad were alcoholics, and they left. And so now he and his, ten, his nine other brothers and sisters are left at home to live with his aunt. And so he lived so poor. He lived on the streets in Kenya. There was a time when he, when he started getting older, he wanted to take his life, and then somebody invited him to meet Jesus. And he put his faith in Jesus, and it changed the way he saw the world. So he decided it was time to get off the streets, and he, he would walk miles and miles to go to school. He, uh, he ended up getting a degree, ended up getting um, hired on with an agricultural company, and he moved into an executive position. He, he made enough money, started a trucking company, he bought real estate, and then he bought 50 acres of land, which was where he was going to retire. He was very wealthy. Well, one day, Charles is going to a movie or going to a meeting in Kenya, and he pulls up, and he parks his car, and there's these, um, th- these boys who are living on the streets who come up, and they say, hey, sir, can we wash your car for money? And he says, no, thank you, no, thank you. And he goes into his meeting, and he comes back out, and his car was gone. And so he gets on a bus, and Rides the bus home. This is 1989. And he, he thinks to himself, he, he thinks to himself, man, my background was just like that. I lived on the streets, and somebody's got to do something for these kids. And so he goes home. He tells his wife, Esther, and his, his, he's got eight kids, a couple of them were adopted. And he says, look, we need to do something about these kids that are living on the street. He says, I want to start adopting these kids. And, his, of course, his family's like, this is crazy. 
So what they do is they adopt three in 1989. What's really cool, by 1995, they had 300. Here's a picture of them today. And so over the years, this is, you know, over 30 years ago, over the years, Charles Mully and his family begins to invite more kids off the streets. What's funny is his kids hated it at first because that means they had to give up their rooms. And so he sent his kids to boarding school till they got their heads right. Let's let that be a lesson <laughs> to the kids. There's no kids in here. They're all back there. Let this be a lesson. So... He starts bringing more kids in, rescuing kids off the street. And what's really cool is as the kids come in, they all like, see that they're part of this new family. And they all start working and serving together. And they have this 50-acre ranch. And they're, they're producing all their own vegetables. They're self-sustaining. Uh, they, they're ranching, farming. I mean, it's just amazing, right? They estimate since 1989, Charles Mully has rescued more than 23,000 kids. And that 12... And, and so they, do, they, they teach them. I mean, they've got... They've got School. They've got uh, technology. They've got all these things, right? And so they estimate that 12,000 of those kids have gone on to be doctors and lawyers and teachers and all these things. But think about it like this. Like there, there's this group of, there's 3,500 of them living now. So when COVID hit, Africa locked down, there's 3,500 kids all living on this farm. Guess what? They just took care of each other. They served each other. They grew their vegetables. They had clean water. They had very little sickness there, and they were able to branch out. While a lot of the children's homes in Africa closed, they didn't. And they were able to love on the communities around them because they all saw that their role was to serve each other and to be a part of this thing that was beautiful. So think of this church. Take that picture, and that's the church, isn't it? That Jesus has rescued us off the streets, that he's taken us from these li this life of spiritual poverty and ugliness, and he's brought us into this thing that's, it's still messy. It's called the church. But he says to each of us that I have given you a gift and I want you to serve each other. I want you to not think inward because that's not where happiness is found. That's not where joy is found. That's not where contentment is found. That's not where greatness is found. But it's found by serving others, by getting outside of yourself. That's the church. And what's beautiful about that is in two weeks, we're going to welcome Center Church in here. And this is going to be a group of people who are going to, no doubt, wonder, what's Forefront all about? What's their heart? Am I going to just be left to sit by myself, or am I going to make any new friends? And what would it look like if we as a church served, like the body? And when we walk them in, the Center in, we serve them. We do everything we can to care for them. We do everything we can to encourage them. We do everything we can to pick them up. We love on them. We care for them. We show them Jesus. Friends, that's my challenge for us, is to be a church that serves. To not think of it about me, myself, and I, but to think about us and we together. Welcoming Center in and welcoming this community to be a part of the beautiful things that God is doing here in Harvey Park in Southwest Denver and beyond. So I guess the question is, what choice do you want to make? How are you going to pursue your greatness? I pray we pursue it together. Would you pray with me?